Welcome to the Community Revival Podcast, brought to you by 13 Ways. We help communities thrive. If you're here, then you care as much about communities as we do, and you're looking for ways to make your neighborhood better, stronger, and more prepared for the future. Oh, I am no, I have no doubt whatsoever. Um, <laughs> you guys have already done a lot of amazing things. So, okay, uh, welcome to the Community Revival Podcast. I am your host, Doug Griffiths, and as usual, uh, we have some interesting uh, guests to talk to today about um, community revival and how we deal with challenges to build communities. Because, as you've heard me say many times before, building communities is the absolute single most important job on earth. So. I know that when we're talking about community building, we have this impression that it is the domain of elected leaders. It is a domain of administration that that work to build communities. It is the domain of our volunteers and the public. And together, all of them should be making our communities stronger. But one group that is consistently left out of these debates and this discussion and the dialogue about building better communities our business. The business community is incredibly important, instrumental, in fact, in helping to make sure that our communities are strong and successful. Now, a lot of companies don't make community building a top priority. They don't consider this a critical initiative as part of their business plans. Their their core mindset, which has been the tradition for hundreds of years, is to grow profits grow equity, and uh, that's how you measure success. But there's a change in mindset, and there are some communities that are doing things differently, that understand that their success is contingent upon their communities being successful. And so they are working hard to build communities. Our guest today is one of those people representing one of those companies that is doing amazing things to help build the communities in which they do business. Uh, I'm joined by Paul. I'm going to, as always, let Paul introduce himself so you get familiar with his voice and he can explain to you a little bit about who he is, his background, and where he comes from. Paul, welcome to the Community Revival Podcast. Doug, thank you so much. I am honored. Yes, my name is Paul Kimmel. I work for Avista Corporation and Avista Utilities. We are an investor-owned utility based in Spokane, Washington. We serve a, over a little over a half a million customers, mostly in the inland northwest of eastern Washington, northern Idaho, parts of Oregon, western Montana, and uh, the borough and city of Juneau. Um, again, we were formed on the banks of the Spokane River, uh, a hydro-based utility some 131 years ago, and uh, we grew up with our communities. And um, so it's been a long, a long culture of community engagement for us as a utility, which is, um, you know, a little different than a lot of uh, a lot of businesses and utilities as well. And so I think that's really what started the culture for us is, you know, we've been growing up, we've been growing alongside, and we've always been in these communities. I, I first actually heard um, significantly about the work that Avista was doing um, through Idaho and through Washington when I saw a press release about uh, a fund that was created by Avista specifically for helping communities. Yes, um, and I'm trying to think which fund that was. We've we've set up a few, and we have a we have a uh, philanthropic foundation 
So I think we cut out, Doug. Oh, I'm I'm sorry about that. It was a um, the press release that I'd seen was a fund for a few million dollars specifically to help over a hundred communities with initiatives um, and uh, plans to help them become more prosperous um, and to grow economically. Uh, and that, that was a couple of years ago, I think. That that was just one infusion of funds designed to help communities in a long history of working with your local communities, correct? But could you tell me a little bit about how you go about helping those communities? Our corporate culture really um, is really designed to uh, support the communities. And so we set up a an Avista Foundation some years ago uh, where we can both channel philanthropic dollars as well as corporate dollars. Uh, directed at our communities, whether it's arts and culture, education, youth development, and economic and community development. So we've been doing that for many years. Um, we've also stood up some organizations, and you were part of uh, one of those organizations, the Inland Northwest Partners. And that that's a 30, I think we're 37 years old now. And that is where we convened uh, our community leaders, our economic and community development professionals to come together and uh, share best practices, uh, struggles, challenges, opportunities, and how we as a utility can support those important priorities in these communities. Um, and then out of that, we've also spun out organizations called the Inland Northwest Economic Alliance, where we've committed uh, dollars, tools, and resources for our economic development practitioners, where we can actually give them the tools they need to do their jobs successfully. Um, on average, we commit a little over two and a half to $3 million a year on corporate philanthropy. And of that, nearly a million dollars uh, directly towards economic and community development. And that takes all kinds of forms and fashions from supporting uh, economic development organizations to uh, providing cash match or in-kind uh, for priorities in communities. Uh, we do loaned executives where the, a great case in point there is the Washington State University when they wanted to develop their medical school in Spokane. We committed a full-time executive to help drive that initiative. Um, and we were successful. And that medical school is up and running and cranking out rural doctors as we speak. Wow. That's one of the most interesting and innovative ideas I've heard is loaning out an executive because a lot of small communities are already fully tasked and lack the capacity to, to hire somebody else or to even find that somebody else in the community that can help with some of that expertise and, and management. So that's an, it's an incredibly innovative program. It's, it's, it's worked really well for us, Doug. And uh, again, we, we will come alongside those communities, uh, and when we can help determine that priority, uh, we can help drive them to success. It's not perfect, but yeah. it's amazing when you can bring the, the corporate resources into a, a community and really help drive prosperity. Yeah, and not just financial resources, but that expertise and the capacity yes. and the partnership and the support. That's so many times uh, communities are looking for money and what they what they need is some capacity and some partnership and support and some innovation to help um, uh, because that's sometimes what they're lacking. So that's that, that's a message actually for other 
companies um, that you don't necessarily just have to cut a check. In fact, that might not be the best way to help a community. Absolutely. It, it isn't always the best way. And, and I have found uh, through practicing this myself that, um, and as you know, and you write in your book, 13 Ways to Kill Your Community, um, what often is lacking in these small communities is that, that civic infrastructure. And if, if we can help build that, if we can help provide resources to help that community drive to success, then yeah, sometimes it isn't money. Sometimes it's expertise. Well, and the the current situation in many of your communities is is um, now you need money and you need the expertise and and to help support that civic infrastructure because um, you your communities right now um, like so many other communities are experiencing a, a, a modest disaster with the pandemic and in the midst of a modest disaster with the pandemic you had a real life natural disaster roll through your communities? Yes, we did. Um, a Labor Day wildfire um, pretty much devastated two small communities in um, eastern Washington in Whitman County, the town of Malden and Pine City, and essentially leveled those communities to the ground, taking out uh, City Hall, the library, the food bank, um, and about 85% of the homes. Um, so. It's been it's been a challenge uh, to, again to to figure out how we can support it. But we were on the ground day one, you know, initially restoring power. But um, I worked very hard at reestablishing local government here and trying to stand that back up. And then we've evolved into uh, a long term recovery effort now. And that's three months into it. That's where we're at. And, you know, every day gets a little better. Uh, but what we've discovered is these this community, the greater community. I mean, these these people were struggling before a wildfire uh, took most everything away. And so, how do we how do we re rebuild in a more resilient uh, and sustainable way uh, and get them whole again? And how do you do that? Because I I know, um, and one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you about this and interview about this and what the company's doing is because in Alberta, where I'm from, uh, we had uh, 29 communities flooded uh, in 2013, and some of them were absolutely devastated. And, uh, you know, governments have a tendency to say, well, let's write a check and fix this. But it's the psychological impacts on the community that are such a challenge. I mean, that first... You, you go to have the first town hall meeting to gather people together to talk about what you're going to do to rebuild the community. And then you realize the town hall's burned down and there's no place to meet. Well, where do you start? That's that's where you start. You start with what you have uh, when you have it. And, and that's exactly what we did. We we got a couple tent big tents set up and we just said, you know what, we're going to just create a new uh, community gathering space. And it, it was a. Uh, a little more challenging with the pandemic and all of the social distancing, but um, thankfully um, we were able to uh, start convening the community and start having those conversations. And so it's it's an evolution process that you know every day, like I said, Doug, every day gets a little better, but it's it's a marathon. It's not a sprint, and you just have to 
address the needs as they come in and try and figure out what's best. Um, and, so, you know, being a, a former elected official like you, I was a, a county commissioner and, you know, for a number of years and I was drilled in disaster recovery and all that good stuff. But until you actually are in the middle of something, you just don't know how many moving yeah. parts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, it's, um, it's not a playbook that you can just open up and go through step one, step two, step three, recovery done, complete, close the book and, a bit and go on, right? Yeah. So wh where are you at now with the, the rebuilding and uh, like rebuilding the, the psychology of the community and it's, it's building in that resilience, let alone building the physical infrastructure. Where are you at now? You know, um, and again, I, um, and I apologize for this because I, I just, I kind of under, well, I made some assumptions in the community that, hey, these people are ready to move on and get, get back, get their lives back. But, you know, I, I just didn't think or appreciate the need for healing. And that's, you know, that's just something you just have to kind of let happen and give them time to grieve for losses and, then you know like i said it's just a it's a process and i i just didn't give that enough um, enough attention early on and i think we're we're discovering that people need to grieve obviously and so we're still seeing that we um you know we were quick to get the town hall up and running again um and the town is trying to figure out the role they play uh but it's uh forming this uh, long-term recovery organization. And we've formed a, a nonprofit uh, comprised of community members, some that lost everything, some that had their homes remain. And that's the other interesting thing. There's, um, a, you know, a certain amount of guilt with those residents that didn't lose things. You know, the, the fire went by their house and they feel horrible for their neighbors and almost guilty. And so you've got to, you know, it's just uh, it's just patience and supporting them where they are with what they have. Uh, but we're we're uh, meeting weekly with our long term recovery organization, uh, forming those focus areas around immediate needs and case management and short term housing. And then the, the bigger long term redevelopment strategy. This uh, Malden is a community of about 200 people. Um, pretty rural um, and pretty um, uh, pretty poor socioeconomically. So, again, um, trying to introduce them to a better a better community and give them visions for what that could look like. Uh, focusing on connectivity going forward um, and creating some of those opportunities. It's you know it's a really lovely setting here in Eastern Washington, and so I th I think. Um, there will be opportunities for others to come in and, and move into this community and help help build a stronger community going forward. Yeah, it is a it is a beautiful area and has amazing potential. In fact, we um, it's interesting that you talk about rebuilding and the new potential. Um, and because when um, when we wind up working in communities and I'm sure you've had the same sort of experience there. Uh, 
it, there is a new opportunity in a in as horrible as the situation is there's an an opportunity to rebuild the community from the ground up the way you would want it and we actually we do a lego exercises with communities and sit them down with a giant table and and all the lego they need and they have to build the ideal community from scratch the walking trails where the shopping is where the housing is everything and they debate and they argue and they build it and then i say great how do you get your town from looking the way it is to looking the way you want it to be if this is the ideal town. And it is so hard when you're already in a place to do that transition. But, you know, if there's there's always some sort of um, opportunity in every challenge and their opportunity in in Malden would be to to be able to reinvent themselves and build the community of their dreams um, that can attract more people, attract more professionals. Uh, you know, I tell everyone all the time is, Long as you have high speed internet, there are a lot of of people from age eighteen to eighty five that would love to live in a real neighborhood and a real community. Yeah, and so it's, yeah. it creates all sorts of new opportunities. Yeah, I yeah, know that certainly. they're not uh, they're not bound to be excited about that yet, though. <laughs> no, they're not. But that's that's exactly right. It's like a a fresh you know a fresh clean canvas, and and what can you paint on that canvas? You know something something more beautiful you know and this is a town doug that uh and uh, i've shared with you we we will do mayor's roundtables um in many of our communities um and we'll bring you know a, a all the county mayors together from the communities and they share struggles successes and malden was always one um that i mean they didn't have a main street business left this was a railroad town the milwaukee road essentially built this town around the turn of the century. Um, and when the railroad left, uh, pretty much the commerce left with it. And so um, they they didn't have an opportunity or couldn't really reinvent themselves. And so they just turned into a kind of a rural remote town that attracted um, anything but commerce. And so uh, when I, I, I do mayor's roundtables, and uh, I think I've shared that with you, the former mayor of Malden um, was a he was a a real character, but he would brag that his uh, his business um, sector grew by a hundred percent. And uh, what he meant by that was <laughs> the, the vending machine at town hall. He said, "I actually got both Coke products and Pepsi products," and that was his role. <laughs> so, uh, yes. So there's there is a lot of upside potential in this community for some commerce, and again, that that connectivity um, is going to really help drive a lot of that. I think. You know, when we had the, the flooding in some communities, the one, one thing that we learned was that there was one community in particular that had its entire downtown wiped out. And so the resources were there for them to rebuild, but they, the majority of the people in the community decided to rebuild differently with wider sidewalks and more trees and more walkability and socialization. And so that it they could have activities downtown, which would then increase the prosperity of the businesses. And it was interesting to see how many people were mad at that. And I, I don't know that they were necessarily mad at it. They were mad at the change. 
And they were mostly mad that they wanted things to go back to normal as quickly as possible. And, and with these changes, the rebuilding, it wasn't just patching things up. It was it was converting the community to something new. And they, they just wanted things to go back to normal. And I think that was because they were still grieving and just just wanted a restoration of normality as quickly as possible. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I've, I've discovered here. It's like, like I said, I just uh, I just think we, we have to give them time to grieve and address those immediate needs as best we can. But again, um, give them the time to work through some of that loss. Yeah, I'd, I'd also if I had any advice, it's that um, uh, we also discovered through a, a couple of um, pretty horrific fires of our own that devastated two communities and those flooding and those other ones. Um, it's a little, this grieving process is a little like losing someone you love. And then everyone is there for a few months to help you through and they bring over lunches and they bring over dinners and they, but then they get back to their normal lives. And, and even though you're feeling better, you think things are good, but a year later, um, you, you see an old photograph of the person that you lost and you remember the Christmases. And then at Christmas, you realize they're not there with you and their birthday passes and they're not there with you. It, it's, it's not a, exactly the same, but but a year after the disaster, there will be this floodback of memories and experiences. At Christmas, you realize you lost the Christmas decorations that your kids made, and and all those feelings, all that that despair and worry and pain can get brought up again. That's that's yeah. something to anticipate, I think. Yeah one one of the things that our our so so our recovery group uh, that we stood up quickly consists of. Myself, uh, a couple emergency management folks from both the state and county, and then we hired a recovery manager, and he happened to be on the town council uh, as well as lost his home, but really gifted, young, bright, um, and energetic, and it was just the perfect, uh, perfect fit for us to help drive this. But one of the first conversations we had um, was. Okay, let's talk about a year from the day of the fire, which um, happened to be Labor Day. Yeah. So, so the the group committed to a celebration next next Labor Day, and so again we're we're kind of jumping off at that point and saying, okay, we're going to benchmark ourselves in a year and celebrate the success we've had. And so again, some positive, uh, putting things on the calendar, saying. Labor Day 2021, we're going to celebrate how we are doing. And we're going to just not take anything for granted, uh, love on each other, and just continue to build community. Yeah, that's amazing. That's great planning uh, and anticipation for that. I, and it is, it is um, you know, when, when we did the one-year anniversary, we asked the communities, what do you need help with? And... I was surprised. I thought that they would they would want some um, more support for the the negative emotions that people would be feeling and the frustration. And they wanted exactly what you guys are doing. They wanted a celebration to say, "Look at how far we've come, we've moved on," and to come together as a community. And it was a uh, well. I remember the event. It brought me to tears. It was uh, pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're gonna do a, a fun little Christmas tree lighting this. This community has uh, rarely done anything around Christmas time, so I've got a couple of my Avista crews here today, uh, stringing lights in one of the big pine trees in town at the town park. And so 
we're going to just start, uh, you know, start trying to celebrate a little more. Um, we also committed to uh, building a community meeting hall. And this, again, is a town that never had a large place to gather, to break bread, to uh, to celebrate uh, weddings and, and grieve at funerals and everything else. And so uh, we, we were able to secure a, a couple anonymous donations and we have enough money now to build a, an incredibly cool uh, large community building. And so we're looking at some final plans on that and getting that underway. So here in a few months, we can actually start gathering together um, under cover instead of under a tent or in the, our neighboring yeah. town. So, yeah, because we are That's still, amazing. we're still meeting. Amazing work. <laughs> we're still meeting under tents and today, in fact, today. Um, so this is a cool story. Again, we've had so much uh, support from faith-based organizations and even some corporations like uh, Facebook. Uh, they committed to uh, six, I think six, six weeks. Every Wednesday, they drove a truck over full of catered meals. Um, to Malden and fed everybody every Wednesday for the last six weeks. Wow, that's 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 impressive. I'm not a a big fan <laughs> of Facebook, but it's nice to see them stepping up with some uh, I know. corporate responsibility. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Oh, that's and a great story. Got, yeah, and so I, I, one of our uh, faith based organizations out of Spokane is going to continue that. Uh, that uh, tradition now and provide meals on Wednesdays. Um, you know, we got the library back up and running here. Um, and today is the official grand reopening. And in that, um, with some CARES Act money, um, they were able to buy some additional computers. And so they've set up some workstations in the library. Um, we got them a, a, a part of a modular building. So they've got lots of warm, space with good internet connectivity and again we're gonna just start providing some of those really important services um, for these residents it's excellent Can I ask you, this This is a, an addition to the, the general topic, but um, many people have heard the analogy about the boiling frog. And I always tell people, don't don't go boiling frogs. I'm not I'm not consenting to that. But but the mindset that, you know, you you take a frog that that um, is cold blooded, absorbs the temperature of its surroundings and you you put it in boiling water and it will leap out. But if you put it in lukewarm water and you slowly turn up the heat it it adjusts its own body temperature to it and it will actually sit there until it boils to death don't don't try this at home that's not a but the mindset is that we react to big crises but little slow crises we often don't and um there are a lot of communities in the United States and Canada, all over rural North America, um, that haven't experienced a disaster like Pine City and Malden have and other communities with, with fire or with flooding or with other natural disasters, but they are slowly um, a disaster. It's just, it's just an, a slow motion disaster that takes a generation to happen. And they keep saying, well, you know, it's not that bad yet but it never really quite gets that bad because you don't have that dramatic change. You don't have that instant disaster that motivates you. 
you guys work a lot with those communities too. I mean, we do, and I know you guys do. Do you guys have a strategy for addressing that mindset um, while you're trying to support these communities? You know, I think you wrote a book about this. I'm not sure. I think it's called 13 (laughs) Ways to Kill Your Community. (laughs) But yes, we do. We do work with a lot of communities. And in fact, uh, working with you, we've, we've, doing we're doing exactly that is we've identified uh 20 almost 25 communities that we uh that we are working with and help them based on your book based on your community assessment um really get them help them to recognize who they are where they are and what they can do to stop that sort of slow um, almost unperceptive unperceptible deterioration in the fabric of their community and so you know, unfortunately, the, the pandemic got in the way as we were going back out to work in those communities. But um, we're helpful. We're, we're hopeful we're going to we're going to be back out engaging with them. And, yeah, many of those communities are, you know, there's good people. There's they have good. These communities have good bones. And it's just uh, getting them to see the good as opposed to, you know, the bad. And, and then turning that start putting a little polish on on that good. Yeah, well, if the pandemic has taught us anything of consequence, it's that um, you can do just about everything online, but it really matters where you live because community is there uh, when you need a hand. Uh, and and I think you know, for a couple of generations, we've uh, we've kind of forgot that we've we've become I don't know maybe so economic and business minded that we forget that you know. Sure, you can get things for cheap on Amazon, but they don't call you if you're sick. They don't bring over supper if you you can't go out. They don't check to see if you're. They send you a note that says, "Hey, you haven't bought anything in a while. Check out our deals." But but community matters more than ever. Those local businesses create jobs. Those um, the it just neighborhoods and communities. I think um, after the pandemic, people are recognizing just how critically important they are. Uh, so maybe maybe the good news out of the pandemic is that it opens up the mindset of these folks that you know they realize that every, when the pandemic struck, people left their cities, they went out to their cottages, they went to small towns, they went back to their mom and dads because it was safe, and the the lowest transmission rates are happening in in real communities and neighborhoods. Um, it's the the densely populated cores that don't work. And that's we're seeing mass exoduses of people out of Toronto and out of Calgary and out of major centers who realize I don't need to live beside the corporate office anymore. I can live anywhere. And uh, they're picking they're picking places like the communities you work in. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And you know, I I guess I took, you know, I I live in a a, a rural community in northern Idaho on on my wife's family farm. It's over a hundred years old and you know, it, the family grew up there um, six generations now uh, on that farm. And you just think about we've um, we know we know all of our neighbors. And um, but so many people, um, I think what this pandemic has done is part of that, as you say, kind of um, helping people sort of discover who their neighbors are, for one thing, because I always challenge people, well, do you even know who your next door neighbors are? Could you have a conversation with them? Could you name them first by first name instead of just saying, yeah, he drives a, a, a Mazda and yeah, I, I see him come home <laughs> yeah. every night kind of thing. No, it's uh, so again, that's, that's again, it gets back to that, that civic infrastructure. And we, we, you know, we, we've sort of, 
lost that that personal touch and, and that neighborliness. And so I forget what the term for that is, but just, again, it's sort of building these, uh, sort of having an attitude of radical neighboring. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Radical neighboring. Oh, I, I sense a column coming and I sense a, a lot of, <laughs> that is great. Paul, I will, I will totally credit you with that, but I, that is a term we're going to have to use more of radical neighboring. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else um, you wanted to add um, that we may have missed in the conversation? Um, you know, again, Doug, maybe um, where you go now. Yeah, well, I, I guess the one thing, and again, I I, I love the work that uh, I'm allowed to do for my company, and um, I work with a great group of colleagues that are equally as invested. And again, so much of it is just that relationship that. Uh, the business needs to have with local governments and communities. And, and I think you need to be really intentional about those relationships and not make assumptions and just commit to, uh, to those relationships um, in the best of times and in the hardest of times. And I think that that really helps drive success in these communities um, when they can reach out, call me on the phone and say, Hey, Paul, you're a, you're a trusted advisor. Can you help? That's uh that's amazing. And you know what there, I think the, the theme, if there's one is that corporate culture is so critically important to the, the success of the company, but also the communities they work in. And, and I appreciate that, uh, Avista and its uh, executives um, recognize the need to help build communities. But I, I think they're also incredibly fortunate to have uh, people like you, Paul, and like Ian, and I know you have other team members uh, that that are, aren't are just, uh, you know, writing checks and just saying we need to help. Your, I mean, your email says, I'm in Malden, <laughs> you're on the ground, they're helping uh, constantly and consistently. And I, I, that's how you build a culture is with people. So yeah, yeah. thank you for the work that you do. Yeah. And likewise, Doug, I, I'm honored to, to work alongside you. And I, I, I feel like if I can pick up the phone and say, Hey, Doug, help me out here. Give me some, give me some wisdom. Anytime. And I mean, we say that to everybody. We're just a, a text or a, an email or a call away. Um, so it, you know what, if we can help with anything, uh, as you're working on the rebuilding books for the library, um, and not just, you know, 13 ways books, we have other <laughs> books that we're happy to send to. Um, but if there's anything we can ever help with, please let us know and, and keep doing, uh, the great work that you do. Yes. Thank you, Doug. Likewise, uh, we'll be working with you going forward for sure. Thanks, Paul. And for everyone out there who's listening to this, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. And as I said, if you have any questions, you just want to talk something through and you're working on building your community, we're here to help. Uh, just drop us a note. Um, and otherwise, get out there, uh, mask up, and keep working hard to build your community. Stay safe, everyone. Thanks for joining in on the Community Revival Podcast. To keep up to date on all our podcasts, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and follow us for more great content at 13 Ways. That's 13WAYS.ca. Remember, no matter what the challenge, what the issue, or where you are starting from, when it comes to making your community more successful, there's always a way.